Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. No kid forgets getting his first bike, nor the surge of independence he felt the first time he pedaled away from his parents. And even as adults, the bike seems to give off a feeling of romance, of freedom. When you get going fast enough, even of flying. The special allure of the bicycle can really be traced back to its simple yet elegant design. My guest today will unpack the intriguing history of its creation. His name is Jody Rosen, and he's the author of Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. Today on the show, Jody explains the origins of the bicycle's design, including how it was an anachronism at its birth, may have been inspired by a volcanic eruption, and helped liberate mankind from dependence on draft animals for transportation and exploration. We also get to how the bicycle is associated with flight right from the start. Along the way, we discuss how cycling represents an uncanny fusion of man and machine and produces a set of -of one-of-a-kind pleasures. This episode will make you want to mount your trusty bicycle steed and take a ride. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash bike. Jody Rosen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brett. Glad to be here. So you've been an avid cyclist since childhood. You ride a bike for transports, how you get around. You've never owned a car. And you've got this book out called Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. And this book, it's really wide ranging. It's a, it's a cultural history of the bike where you delve into different ways the bike has impacted our life from, you know, you got politics, even how our physical landscape has been shaped. And also this book, it really seems like it's a, it's a love letter to bikes. And I kind of want to focus on that romance today because I've always noticed there's this sort of allure around bikes. Like we, it's something magical about them, you know, kids getting their first bike, you know, you got Elliot flying on his bike over the moon with E.T. Um, and I think a lot of this romance about the bike goes back to its design. It's really simple. It's like two wheels, you got handlebars. And because it's so simple, I think a lot of people will think, well, man, some version of the bike has been around for a long time, but they're actually a relatively recent invention. So what was considered the first bicycle and when was that made? Yeah. So the, the first bicycle, which I guess you could kind of call it like a proto bicycle, arrived a little over 200 years ago. I guess for crunching the numbers, 205 years ago, in 1817, in the Duchy of Baden in the, in the German Federation, in the city of Mannheim. So this is a bicycle that was invented by a, a minor German nobleman named Carl von Dreis. And he called the thing the Laufmaschine, or the, the running machine. Uh, he called it that because this first bicycle had no pedals. So it was a little bit like those 
in fact, very much like those balanced bicycles that you see little kids riding or, you know, kind of scooting along the ground in order to like learn to balance their, their bodies on the bike. It was a machine that had two wheels in a line, you know, one, one in front of the other. That was the crucial breakthrough, the kind of crucial insight that Carl von Dreis made. That you, could, you could have a machine that worked like that with two wheels lined up in a row as opposed to on either side of an axle. And he, you know, kind of linked those wheels with a, a saddle or a seat in between. But the device was propelled by this kind of scooting or ice skating motion where he, you know, you literally ran your feet along the pavement to propel the thing. So in that way, it was it was definitely different than the bicycle that we know today, the kind of classic bicycle, which has, which has two wheels, but has a, has a chain drive and pedals. This, so this, this is a very much a first pass. So what's curious, I think, about it, you know, is, and kind of important to take on board, is the fact that the technology to build that thing had existed since the early Middle Ages, but it took many, many centuries of trial and error to, for humanity to arrive at a bicycle. So in a way, I say in the book, it, it kind of arrived illogically late. We think of the bicycle as something that could have been, should have been around you know, forever, since antiquity or whatever. But in fact, the bicycle, when it arrived in 1817, we already, the steam locomotive had already been invented 15 years earlier. And by the time we got, like the, the bicycle's design was kind of perfected in the 1870s, 1880s, the automotive age was, was dawning. So, so the bicycle is this kind of strange you know, anachronism at birth. You know, this Drace guy, why did he decide to design this thing? Was he just like, is it for fun or was there actually, a, did he have a practical purpose in mind? Yeah. So he was a, he was a, a kind of a tinkerer and inventor. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what he did for, for fun. Or he viewed this as his kind of calling in life. I mean, he was, he was technically a forester. He had kind of like a bureaucratic job, but because of his, his, aristocratic background. He's, this was sort of a uh, position where he drew a salary for not doing much work. And he really, what he really spent his time doing was dreaming up new machines. And he was pretty successful in his inventions. I mean, he didn't just invent a bicycle. He, he invented like stenography machines and various other devices. So he was, he was a very clever guy. But the context for the invention of, of the Lauf machine was, well, for one thing, he'd, he'd been experimenting with devices of this sort, with transportation devices for some time. He'd, he'd gotten it in his head that we needed a better means of moving across land than either on foot or on some kind of a horse-drawn vehicle. So he was seeking a replacement horse. And in the period that he invented this, in 1816, was a tumultuous and important year, now maybe largely forgotten historically, but, but there was a, a, a giant explosion of a volcano, eruption of a volcano on an Indonesian island in 1815 which shot you know, great <laughs> quantities of volcanic ash up into the atmosphere. And that kind of ash cloud drifted west. So by the summer of 1816, you had a kind of a veil of volcanic ash literally dimming the sun. So this was known across the Western world in Western Europe and the United States as the year without a summer. And so some historians have speculated that it was the fact that there were shortages of oats due to the terrible climatic conditions, which was killing off horses, which turned the Carl von Dreis's thoughts to the idea of a replacement horse because, you know, there were, there were not as many horses around and the, and, and the horses in question were in bad shape. Other, also, it's been speculated that because of the ice that was everywhere in Germany during that summer of 1816, he was seeing people ice skating around and, and that, that might have 
you know, spurred the idea for a machine, a, a wheeled device that you that you propel by, a, you know, using an ice skating motion. But but these are this is just speculation. There's no confirmation of you know exactly what the eureka moment was or what the what the pattern of thinking that led him to this thing was. We can just say that he's a guy who who liked to invent things and was very interested in the in the in the problem of transport. Well, and so I think it's interesting this connection between you know the bike trying to be a replacement, a potential replacement for the horse. Since that time, the horse and the bike have been connected. Oftentimes, bike companies use a horse as a logo for for their bike, their bicycle. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, that's that's really like, I mean, just to to take it back, like the bicycle was a solution to a to a really an age old problem, an age old dream, which is this quest for a transport device that could help man travel, help mankind, humankind travel across land swiftly under their own power. That is opposed, as opposed to in some sort of cart or carriage that was pulled by a draft animal. You know, in the, prior to the time of the bicycle, you had to hitch up some sort of wheeled contraption to a horse or a donkey or a dog if you wanted to like move swiftly across the land using any other means other than <laughs> your own two feet. So yeah, the bicycle instantly was recognized by Drace and by others as a kind of replacement for the horse. And throughout its history in the 19th century, there was this kind of conflict between the bicycle and the horse, between um, people who were involved in industries that were, you know, horse-centric industries, every, everything from, you know, hackney carriage drivers to owners of stables to veterinarians to, you know, blacksmiths who <laughs> made horseshoes. People in these industries were threatened by the advent of the bicycle because it was seen as, you know, potentially and not incorrectly as something that would lead to the obsolescence or, you know, at least the diminishment of, of those horse industries. And there was a, there was a whole class component to this too, because, you know, eventually once we got a a bike that was a, a cheaper bike available to the masses, suddenly you had many, many, many millions more people who could afford a form of personal transport than you had in a period when, you know, people had to rely on, on say a hackney carriage because those were expensive. And so, you know, transport prior to the arrival of the bicycle, land transport was really a class stratified. If you were, if you were rich, maybe you could travel around on a horse or in a horse drawn carriage. Uh, if you weren't, yeah, you were, you were stuck going on foot. Well, okay. So, but before the bike became democratized and we'll get to talk about the safety bike, that was the big innovation. So this thing that Drace made, it got imported across Europe. And the first people that really took a hold of it were the elite, were sort of like the aristocracy. They had the money and time to, to walk around on these things. And it, and it caused like sort of this early craze in the Regency era. So it was like the early 19th century. They called it the Velocipede. Tell us about this craze. What was going on? Who was riding these, who, who was riding these contraptions? Yeah, that's right. So, so Carl von Drace was kind of like a, he was, he was a great promoter of his machine and he tried to sort of spread the vogue for it across Europe. It first reached Paris and then very quickly crossed the channel. And as you say, there was kind of a big fad for it in Regency England, particularly among the elites, among literal aristocrats and more to the point, young fashion conscious aristocrats who were kind of into the latest technology. So, you know, new weird devices. So yes, what they called the velocipede, which literally means swift, you know, is from the Latin meaning swift of foot. So it was also called the swift walker. It was, it had many nicknames, but notably 
some of those nicknames were the dandy charger, the dandy horse. This is because it was it was associated with these dandies, with these you know very flamboyantly dressed young rich Englishmen who had the money to afford what were fairly expensive machines, and they were you know known to ride these things in uh, kind of CNBC spots in London. Particularly Hyde Park was a was a, was a hot spot for velocipede riding, and even the Prince Regent. George, who was you know, a famously dissolute character known for throwing lavish parties and stuff, he bought a bunch of these things and kept them at his, at his crazy palace in the seashore city of Brighton. So the, the Velocipede very quickly in England developed a reputation as a kind of plaything of the rich. And as a result, there was a lot of animosity <laughs> towards it, you know, populist resentment towards it among the masses. It was viewed as, a, as another sign of of the decadence of the moneyed classes. And so there was, there was a big backlash for that reason against this machine. But, but there, and perhaps even bigger reason for the backlash is these Velocipedes, uh, you know, Drace's device wasn't really particularly well-engineered. It, it in particular had problems with its brakes, so they were viewed as very dangerous. And this was the kind of very first iteration of a conflict which we see to this day over the right to the roadways. That is, the bicycle, the Velocipede, in this case, was viewed from the start as a kind of illicit or illegitimate machine, which was claiming space that didn't belong to it, both on the roads themselves, because that was thought to be the domain of, of you know, horses and horse-drawn carriages, and on the pavements, the sidewalks, which was, you know, considered the place where you walked on your on on foot. So bans were instituted very quickly after a, a kind of craze for these things in particularly in the year 1819. By the time you get to 1820, there are bans imposed on velocipede riding in London. And when this same velocipede reached places in the United States, cities there imposed bans. There was even a ban instituted as far away as Calcutta. <laughs> so, so, so what we see there is like, you know, the very beginning of a, of a pattern that has continued throughout the history of the bicycle, which is these kind of like culture wars and conflicts over, you know, whether the bicycle is, is a device that has a place on the road or should be, you know, marginalized and, and kept off the streets. Okay. So the Velocipede, it still had no pedals. When did, when were pedals added to the bike? So basically the story, the story of the, the bicycle's you know, development is a, is a decades long story of, of kind of experimentation. And there are various inventors and engineers uh, who had a role in this, but there's kind of two major bike booms that, or bike boomlets, you might say, that preceded the, the big bike boom of the 1890s. And in those cases, in the kind of, so in the kind of 1860s, you had a bicycle known as the bone shaker, because it was, it had iron shod wheels and a wooden frame, and and it, and it was you know it was quite uncomfortable to ride, particularly over you know flagstone pavements. But this is a a bike that had a direct drive, so that the the pedals were on the front wheel itself. And then in the 1870s, you had the invention of the the, the iconic penny farthing or high wheeler bike. This is this is the that famous crazy looking bicycle with the giant front wheel and the and the small rear wheel. Again, this is a direct drive device. And the reason you had that huge wheel was because that created a gearing effect because basically you needed that big front wheel because it was a direct drive because you were pedaling, you were using pedals that were directly attached to the hub of that front wheel. The bigger the wheel, the bigger the rotation you would get for each pedal stroke and you, know, you would travel farther and faster because of that. The issue with these 
earlier bicycle designs is that they're unsafe. Um, again, they were like, if you, if you've seen pictures, images of those, maybe even in real life, you've seen one, there's some around of those, those penny farthings, they are really tall. So they're hard to mount. In fact, they were sort of at the height of a horse. That's kind of why they were at that height. So it was difficult to mount in the first place. And once you got up there, because of that direct drive, huge front wheel, they were hazardous to ride. People were prone to, to kind of flying over the handlebars, what was called in the period, taking a header. So you had lots of people, you know, kind of riding along and then pitching over the handlebars and smashing their head on the pavement. So clearly this was, those are, those are beautiful looking things, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it was still, you know, we're talking now 50 years after the invention of the Lauf machine, we still had an imperfect bicycle. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. 
See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And when did they add the chain? Like, when did that happen? So that was, uh, it was the late 1870s where we, where the first designs for what came to be called the safety bicycle emerged. And then it was around 1885 that we had the first, you know, mass manufacturing of, yes, what was called the safety bicycle. And of course it was called that because you know, in contrast to the the earlier types of bikes, it was safe. You had two wheels of, at first, close to equal size, and then very quickly thereafter, you know, absolutely equal size wheels. You had a diamond-shaped frame, the rear-driven, you know, chain drives, such that when you turn the pedals, it, it was it was attached to the to the rear wheel and kind of drag that that rear wheel forward, and then suddenly you could just use the front wheel simply to steer, which was a which is a a much easier and and you know better thought out system than than the, that direct drive system, and so you you had this kind of classical bicycle silhouette arriving in 1885, 18 and into the 1890s, and crucially, you also had pneumatic rubber tires. That is a tire which had a rubber inner tube filled with compressed air, which made a bicycle ride both much smoother and much faster. And this is not just the classic design, but kind of the unvarying design. You know, every bicycle we've, that has come around ever since has, has more or less, you know, the changes to that design have been basically ornamental. Suddenly in the late 1870s, early 1880s, you had, you know, a kind of a, something close to a perfect device. You know, fi- finally, <laughs> the bicycle itself, the, the true bicycle had arrived and and you know that's that's the bike that we recognize today. Yeah, and you have this chapter that I really enjoyed reading about you know how the bike is is such a simple. It's like a simple design. I mean, it's just like you said, it's like diamond shaped circles, but it's very elegant. And you kind of make this case that the bike is one of the greatest human designed objects ever. Like, what do you what do you, what is it about the bicycle that you think it makes it so great? Uh yeah. I mean, simplicity is is definitely part of it. You know what I mean? A bicycle has very few functioning parts. You don't, you know what I mean? To build one, you need just a few things. Unlike a car, right? Which it's like, you know, there's so many, so many intricate parts you need, for instance, for an automobile. Well, bicycle, you only, there's only, there's only a few, a few working parts that you need. And it's kind of a a great example of 
simplicity in design and, and kind of form follows function. Like a bicycle is a very legible device. You can look at it and, you know, even a child can figure out like how this contraption works with just a little bit of like observation and maybe experimentation. So there's definitely a kind of austere beauty in its design. But I think the, the crucial thing about the bicycle is the fact that it is a vehicle whose rider is both the passenger and the engine. So, you know, it's one, one way of putting it is it's, it's almost less a vehicle than it is a prosthesis. When you ride a bike, you sort of merge your body with the bike. You become, if you will, a component of, of the bike. So there's that really, that, that feeling you get on a particularly great ride where you, it's almost uncanny feeling of being like, you know, one with the mechanism of the bike. And I think, you know, it's that uncanny quality of the bicycle the fact that it's a um, that it's that it's a kind of machine man hybrid if you will that that makes it such a such a neat a neat device and and um, and such a beautiful one yeah i think that's interesting because bike riding you know it, you might fall down a little bit when you first learn how to ride a bike but once you do it just seems like the most natural thing it's like well humans were made to do this but it, you think about it like what goes on to ride a bike you have to keep your balance you have to pedal you have to manage speed it seems like, well, humans weren't designed for this, but we somehow make it work. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's, it's I mean, I guess, you know, there's, a, there's the expression, it's just like riding a bike, you know, <laughs> which by which we mean, you know, you know, once you learn to ride a bike famously, you never forget, right? I mean, if you had some horrible, you know, brain trauma, that might be that memory might be shaken out of out of your out of your brain, but the fact is, the bicycle is uh, you know learning to ride a bike is one of these examples of a kind of memory that or a kind of skill that you don't you don't need recourse to conscious thought. Once you've learned to ride a bike, your body knows how to do it, and it, you know I think this lies in in the fact that like real, real, the only thing you really need to learn how to do when you ride a bike is how to how to balance you know, how to keep, yeah. how, to, how, to, how to like straddle the bike and, and keep the thing from tipping over. In fact, what you're doing when you ride a bike is all the time, you're totally unconsciously making tiny little minor adjustments in order to, in order to keep the thing, keep the thing up. But you, once you've, you've mastered, to, to go back to that, you know, the Lauf Machina and the kind of the balance bike that those little kids learn to ride on, you know, what, what we've realized is that when you're trying to teach a little kid to ride a bike, it's, it's best to start them on one of those balance bikes that have no pedals, as opposed to a regular, you know, pedal bike with, with training wheels. Because what you need to learn in order to ride a bike is simply to balance the thing. It's not pedaling per se. So yeah, it's a skill that would seem to be something like a stunt in a way it is a stunt, but it's a simple stunt to master. And that's why, you know, so many people around the world, you know, ride bikes. I mean, like, you know, one thing that I say right in the beginning of my book is the fact that, you know, the bicycle is kind of hidden in plain sight. It's one of those things that we, we take for granted. And there are about 1 billion motor vehicles in the world. There are about 2 million bicycles. And I think that speaks to the fact that like, it's, a, it's an easy thing to master. Also, it's cheap. So that helps. So besides being associated with the horse, the bicycle right away, like especially in the 1890s, got associated with mythology and flight. What was going on there? Yeah, I mean, to go back to, I spoke a little bit about the pneumatic rubber tire. You know, there's this kind of, people often say when they're on their bike, they feel like they're flying. They feel like a bird or something like that. And that was definitely, you know, rhetoric that was, 
heard right from the get-go, the Lauf Machina, the Velocipede was was compared to Pegasus, um, you know, the flying stallion of Greek mythology. And then throughout the 19th century, people were always making analogies to between flying and bicycling. And with the arrival of pneumatic rubber tire, this kind of metaphor became almost literal because when you ride a bike, you are kind of riding on air. That is, you know, the air that's in the tires is literally holding you aloft. So you're, the, the feeling of kind of skimming along like a bird is, is something that's, in a way, actually happening when you ride a bike. But there are other interesting connections between flight, aviation, and cycling, the most kind of dramatic of which is the fact that the Wright brothers, or- Orville and Wilbur Wright, the inventors of the airplane, were, of course, bicycle mechanics and manufacturers. And in order, when they were doing their, their experiments to in their effort to invent a flying machine, an airplane. They used components straight out of their bicycle shop. They experimented uh, some crucial breakthroughs that they made, kind of understanding the mechanics of flight were made because of experiments they performed with bicycle wheels and literally by riding around Dayton, Ohio on their bike, on their bikes. And the kind of most important insight that they gained in their attempt to, to figure out how to work an airplane goes back to this question of balance. They realized that, that an airplane, like a bicycle, could be an inherently unstable mechanism that relied on the ability of the pilot to, to balance the thing. So, you know, the aviation age is, is a kind of direct outcome of the age of cycling. So that, those, those kind of metaphors, the sort of dreamy metaphors about bicycles as flying machines, advertisements in the, in the late 1890s, which famous advertisements that depicted bicycles kind of soaring through outer space. These metaphors were literalized by the, uh, by the Wright brothers. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, with the Wright brothers, they weren't using theory to figure out flight. Like, there really wasn't aerodynamic theory yet, really. And so they were just kind of using, like, they were like figuring out flight the same way you ride a bicycle. It's just you figure out the balance and then you kind of intuitively make adjustments on the fly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and if you think about the Wright brothers' early plane, I mean, it's not, you know, that it, 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 it's not a jumbo jet, right? <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, it's like a one man, one man thing. So it's really, it, it's not, it's not even that, that different in the way it looks than a bicycle. And then you kind of have like a guy sitting on a saddle, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, flying that thing. And also in this period, there were, there were, you know, in the, particularly in the period of the 1890s when suddenly bicycles were everywhere and there are you know, millions of bikes everywhere and the and kind of you know in the especially in in the west in western europe and in the united states there was this just mass obsession with the bicycle there were all kinds of ideas visions for bicycle like flying devices people were constantly patenting various types of you know bicycle airship hybrids none of which got off the ground nowadays we have machines that are like that kind of, you know, you know, pedal powered flying machines of various sorts. Uh, but, but the, you know, the, the link that the Wright brothers made was one that would seem that was sort of intuitive to, to people in this period. Okay. So in the 1890s, the safety bicycles invented, there's this huge boom in bicycles in Europe and the United States. It represents this new form of democratic man-powered mobility. You know, people thought of it as a, a less expensive horse that never needs to be fed. And you know, it brought not only a new way to travel the roads, but also a, a new way to explore the wilds, the wilderness. So who was the, the first guy that thought, 
you know what? What I really need is, is a bicycle. I want to take my bicycle and I want to ride it down this rocky mountain. So how did the mountain bike come about? Well, you know, the impulse to, to ride bikes up mountains existed right from the get-go, <laughs> or at least as soon as we got, had pedal-driven bikes. You know, there are famous, there are famous travel logs in the 19th century written by people who, like, uh, there's one written by a guy named Thomas Stevens who rode his penny farthing, like, literally around the world. I mean, of course, he, he didn't ride it over the oceans. He took ships, but, you know, he used his penny farthing to, to ride up mountain ranges all over, all over Asia and Europe and the United States, people pedaled over the Alps in the 19th century on these on, on these bikes. So, so there were people using bicycles on mountains for for some time. But it was really in the late 60s and early 70s that various cultures of mountain cycling developed, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, where a group of people who called themselves a kind of collective who called themselves Repack kind of souped up these old Schwinn bikes, put much bigger tires on them, messed around with the gearing systems and created bikes, which as you say, you could use to like bomb up and crucially down mountains and kind of go off-roading. And eventually these things were mass manufactured and marketed to far and wide such that there, you know, not only is, you know, mountain biking become a huge recreational pastime for millions of people, but also people who just simply use mountain bikes to, to get around town because they have these great suspensions, they're nicely engineered machines. But yeah, it's funny that, you know, mountain, you know, the, the impulse to kind of use a bicycle, not just to kind of like, you know, cruise around, cruise around town, uh, you know, just to, to get around, but really to like, to challenge your, push your, your body to its physical limit, to, to climb high peaks and then to, you know, brave steep descents is something that's, uh, that's been with us for a long time and, and is, a, is a big, big feature of cycling culture. So I'll admit that while I, you know, I, I had a bike when I was a kid, I, I have a bike now, but I don't really use it as much. Yeah. For me, like it feels uncomfortable, unnatural, hurts my butt. How might you make the case for a grown up to rediscover the pleasures of biking? Oh man. I mean, like, all I can say is it is, you know, it's to, to me, the only thing then better than riding a bicycle is sex. I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be, I'm going to be blunt about it. All right. You know what I mean? And riding a, riding a bicycle with your, with your wife on her bicycle next to you is really fun. Is really fun too. No, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's, in, it's an intensely physically pleasurable thing to ride a bike. It's a great way to go about your business and get around. You know, you, you kind of interact with the world in a different way when you're on your bicycle. You know, you move at a pace that's neither too fast nor too slow. So you, you can kind of soak in the panorama, you know, in a way that you, you, you can't when you're walking or in a car and interact with your environment. In a way, so it's so it's an intensely pleasurable, like for me, like sensual, emotional, and even intellectual experience. Like I think better when I'm on, on my bike. I'm a writer, so like you know, like I'm a journalist. So sometimes when I get stuck on something, you know, have writer's block or whatever, and I need to kind of clear the cobwebs out, I'll just jump on my bike and ride around town for a little bit. And it and it has that it has that effect for me. But but yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing I'd say is simply convenience. It's just like we all spend our time. Particularly for you know we are commuters, car commuters, or on public transportation, kind of moving slowly, stuck in stuck in traffic, whatever. And once you start riding a bike, you realize what a pleasure it is to get around town and how relatively quicker you can get where you're going. So that's that's just the start of my case. Let's put it that way. 
Well, Jody, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, you can go to Google. And if you enter my name, J-O-D-Y-R-O-S-E-N, you'll find some, you know, some articles I've written over the years for, for the New York Times. That's my main gig. But you could also go to my website, jody-rosen.com. And certainly you can find my book, Two Wheels Good, at any bookstore or any online purveyor of books. Fantastic. Well, Jody Rosen, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I've had a great time, Brett. My guest there is Jody Rosen. He's the author of the book, Two Wheels Good. It's available on amazon.com. Also check out his website, jody-rosen.com, where you can find more information about his work. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash bike, where you can find links to resources and we go deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on listening to my podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.